I'm Grace Nosek, and this is Planet Potluck, a podcast sharing the stories of the joy, hope, and community people find in the climate fight. Today, we'll be talking to Lindsay Burroughs, lawyer, author, and linguist. Lindsay is a member of the Chippewas of Nawash First Nation. Her love for the land, water, and storytelling inspired her to explore law as a way to strengthen relationships between humans and non-humans in the spaces we call home. Lindsay, welcome. So excited to have you today. I'm so excited to be here. As kind of is tradition on the show, I like to ask the guests how we, how we first met, how we connected. So can you describe that? Yes, uh, you and I met because we were both at the University of Victoria Law School on Vancouver Island at the time, uh, you doing your research for your Fulbright, and I was in law school, and uh, we attended, actually I had dropped out of law school, I believe, so I was just working at the Indigenous Law Research at UVic, um, and we attended a conference together, well, a conference at the same time, and at the end of it, I believe you gave me a back rub, and that was our introduction <laughs> to each other. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think back exactly how the back rub was, like, our first interaction. Uh, I think you said you might have, like, we got introduced by a mutual friend who had kind of said, "These, you guys will like each other. You, you smile a lot, and you write stories. Um, and then you had kind of mentioned that you had a sore back, I think, that day. And I was just kind of like, oh, well, do you want a back rub? <laughs> and then it was really kind of beautiful because you were just like, yeah, I actually would like one from you, stranger. And that has been the, the start of a, a really beautiful friendship. Yes, our trust was strong from the beginning. <laughs> Your trust especially. So <laughs> there are so many things we could talk about today because you do so many cool things, Linz. But I want to start with your book, Otter's Journey Through Indigenous Language and Law, published by UBC Press this year. I have to say that it's one of my favorite books I've ever read. I just always felt like I was eating the most delicious, nourishing meal whenever I sat down to eat it. <laughs> Not to eat it, to read it. That's how, that's how much <laughs> I associate it with like nourishing me. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, so Otter's Journey was born as an idea when I was doing my undergrad at Dartmouth College. And at the time, I was studying linguistics and specifically indigenous language revitalization. So I had been traveling to um, New Zealand to study a bit about Maori language revitalization. Uh, when I was a kid, I, well, a teenager, I had lived in the Arctic in Nunavut and taken an Inuktitut language class there. And then also during my undergrad, I decided I really wanted to deepen my knowledge of Anishinaabe Muin, which is the language of my ancestors. And so I went to a small community in northern Minnesota where there were a number of speakers, and then I went uh, home to my community of Neashinigming, or the Chippewas of Nawash First Nation. And as I was learning about indigenous language revitalization, I saw in my head uh, an otter, which is my dodam or my clan, 
And she was traveling to all these places that I was going with me. And she was observing what indigenous peoples were doing to revitalize their languages and regain their health in the face of a colonial opposition. And I began to write these stories about Otter and her journeys through time and space and uh, what she was learning. And then by the end of my undergrad, I'd written this thesis. And when I graduated, it didn't feel right to leave Otter behind because we were so close with each other and had spent so much time um, developing these stories. And so over the following about six years, I continued to work on that book and uh, began to see deeper insights about how Indigenous language revitalization is so connected to the revitalization of our laws. Mm. And um, just as languages need to be spoken and need bodies to live in, so do our laws need to be spoken and need to live inside of us. Mm. And uh, currently, Indigenous law is experiencing a resurgence, but hadn't been studied quite as systematically as languages had. And so I thought, well, how can these theories from language revitalization transfer over to law? And so I was playing between those two worlds and all through character dialogue and place-based stories, uh, Otter sheds light into how our languages and laws can be strengthened, not just for Indigenous people, but for everyone who, who calls their home on the land of Indigenous people. Yeah, and Otter is just like the most mesmerizing narrator. I I would follow <laughs> I would follow Otter anywhere around the world. Um, just to pick up on that point you make, you write in your book that this book is an invitation to readers to enter a world that colonialism has suppressed, emerging from the layers of nation-state laws, policies, and colonial languages, are indigenous languages and laws that also hold truths, processes, mechanisms, philosophies, and standards of decision-making to work through the challenges of the 21st century. And then kind of throughout the book, you talk about and expand on this revitalization. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that's happening here? Yeah, how the revitalization is happening in Canada mm. or where it's here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's some really exciting initiatives going on uh, across Canada and across the world, really. But I'll speak to some of the initiatives I've been involved in. So one of them is at the University of Victoria Faculty of Law. In 2012, the Indigenous Law Research Unit was founded. And professors Val Napoleon and Hadley Friedland developed a methodology that we implemented uh, through working with community partners uh, and this, this research unit. And this methodology looks at traditional indigenous stories and then asks questions of them similar to what you learn to do in law school when reading cases. So those questions include, um, what is the main issue in this story? What are the main facts that come out of it? What decision was reached to resolve the issue? And what was the reasoning behind 
those decisions. And then uh, finally, we always give ourselves an opportunity to bracket or to put down ideas that come forward that we don't know how fit into the other categories. So through asking these intense, rigorous questions of of Indigenous stories, we're able to identify legal principles and processes and understand who authoritative decision makers are in that nation, um, what kind of obligations that individuals and the collective have in that nation. And something that was so fascinating to me in doing this work with Indigenous law and Indigenous stories is so many of the most profound and deep harms that can be committed are harms committed against the environment. Mm. And then going to law school in Canada, I was so shocked and found it such a disheartening process because those harms are not taken as seriously for much of the Canadian legal canon. Mm. And it was so uh, fascinating to see uh, that clash in culture and values. And you see this playing out in on the ground today as so many Indigenous communities are stepping up to uphold their traditional laws uh, to protect the environment and carry forward their stewardship obligations. Yet... Canadian law doesn't quite know yet how to create space and recognize uh, the importance of those laws. Mm. Yeah, and I'm I'm an American lawyer who's who's worked on environmental law, and and we have kind of that same issue and that same clash that this those harms are not treated with the with the seriousness that they that they necessarily should be. Um, I know today you had said you might be able to tell a story like this. Would you, would you be, is there one that you'd like to share? Yeah, I would, I would love to share a story and hope that it's able to demonstrate a bit more about how these stories contain law and give all of us uh, here joining in this podcast an opportunity to think together wherever we may be about what this story teaches us as individuals. Yeah. So the story I'd love to tell is called Wabos Gaye Wabagwanad, or in English, it's called The Rabbits and the Roses. And I learned this story from Basil Johnston, who is an elder, uh, now passed away from my community, and he has published many books on Anishinaabe stories. Uh, So this is just one of his repertoire of, uh, he said that he knew at least 100 Anishinaabe stories in both English and Anishinaabe Moen. Wow. yeah, so he had quite a repertoire, and, um, you know, that's just at least. He, he, he didn't know exactly how many there, there were in his mind. So you can imagine if someone was actually making a decision related to, say, how to protect the environment, they would have many stories in their mind. So we're just mm-hmm. going to work with this one uh, to begin with as an example. Okay. The story begins in a time when there were many animals who lived on the land. 
And uh, these animals all had different responsibilities and enjoyed the beauty of the earth and working together to make sure that uh, all was harmonious. And one particular season, the animals began to notice that there were fewer roses than there had been in earlier seasons. And they didn't think too much of it because cycles of plenty and scarcity always happen. But as time went on and the years began to pass, again, these roses kept decreasing and decreasing until finally one day, there were no roses to be found in all of the territory. Well, Bear Makwa, a bear, was the leader of this particular community, and so he gathered everyone together to have a council. And he sent out the message for everyone to join, and sooner than later, all the animals in the territory came together to discuss with Bear what should happen in in order to find these roses. Well, the eagle spoke up first, and eagle said, I know, I'll be able to find the roses. I'll fly up overhead and search across the landscape to find out what's happened to them. I have very keen eyes and can get a vision from way up above. So all the animals agreed that eagle would have great skills to figure out what had been happening to these roses. So Eagle went on his way, and uh, the sun sank, and the moon rose, and then uh, the moon sank, and the sun rose again, and a full day had passed, no Eagle. Well, finally, he returned after several cycles of the sun, and Eagle came to the council and said, I have flown all over this territory and was not able to see a single rose. Well, the animals were disappointed with this, but not necessarily surprised given how long it had been since any of them had seen a rose. And they did notice something a little bit strange about Eagle, which was he had come back from his journey a little bit more plump (laughs) than when he had left. Well, the next animal spoke up, Beaver. And Beaver said, I am a great diver and am able to swim in the waters, so I will look for the roses all along the shorelines and find out if any of them have been in the spaces where land meets the water and are surviving there. Well, all the animals agreed this would be a great idea. So Beaver goes out and again is gone about the same length of time as Eagle. And when Beaver returns to the to the circle, to the council, Beaver reports, I too was not able to find any roses. Mm. And again, all the animals are so disappointed Mm. thinking his skills would have been perfect to find out what happened. But then some of the animals noticed that just like Eagle, when Beaver returned, Beaver too was a little bit more plump (laughs) than when Beaver had initially left. Well, they cycled through many different animals, each employing their different skills to go out across the land and find out what happened, but all of them returned without any success. So Bear finally decided, we all need to travel together, and we're going to go in a group and scan this whole territory and see what we can find out. So the animals agree this is the only option left as each of their individual skills weren't strong enough. They had to go in the collective. 
So they're moving across the land, and again, we're traveling for days and days. And then eventually, they heard a cry out from little Wabos, from the rabbit. Mm. Everyone, quick, come over here. I found a rose. I found a rose. And all the animals come running, and uh, the rose is perched at this cliff edge, just barely hanging on with rabbit next to him. Well, deer called out, hey, this is a bit suspicious that <laughs> rabbit was the one who found this rose. Surely rabbit's known all along where these roses are, and rabbit's the one who's been eating them all. <laughs> well, the animals looked at each other and thought, huh, I, I wonder. And then bear said, could it be? And then others began to agree with this theory that deer had put forward. And then they walked forward and grabbed onto Rabbit and said, how could you be so deceitful and be eating these roses out from under us and not providing any information? <laughs> and they grabbed onto Rose's ears and, uh, or to Rabbit's ears and pulled them so that they became these long ears mm. protruding from the Rabbit's head and then grabbed onto the tail that was long and pulled off rabbit's tail so just a little cotton ball was left and then punched in his teeth so these buck teeth came forward and then broke the back legs so that these big back legs protruded compared to the small ones in the front of the rabbit mm. well as all this violence was going on finally they heard little rose calling out stop stop I can't believe all of you have been attacking Rabbit when you know very well that as each of you went out across the land to find my relatives, you found us here and there, not many of us, but when you did find us, you began to eat our, our delicious petals, mm. and then you came back even more plump to your <laughs> council saying that you didn't find any of us. Well... The animals all looked a little bit sheepish at the ground and then at one another. And uh, in a confession of humility, they admitted that they had found several roses and had, in fact, been eating them. Mm. And after that day, uh, the roses have always had thorns. Mm. And those thorns are to protect the roses and to remind us what happens when we neglect our responsibilities to the weaker among us. And uh, those lessons of, of humility and the importance of working together to take care of the, the many riches that we have in our territories. Mm, thank you so much for sharing that story, Lynn. So what, what can we start to draw out of that story? So if we're to look at it through this example of what's called case briefing that we do in law school, so drawing up the issues, facts, decisions, and resolutions, one of the issues, there's always many issues, but one of the issues that strikes me about this story is uh, what are the consequences for ignoring our obligations to take care of the earth? Mm. Uh, so in this sense, the rose is kind of a representation of the many resources and riches that we have around us. And then the decision here was that the animals all had to gather into a council. And I love this idea of everyone being invited. 
So when we think about important issues such as climate change, who needs to be at the table having these conversations? Mm. We all do, the youngest to the oldest, no matter your your gender, your race, we all have a different skill that we can bring to the table. And then finally, as the uh, individuals were failing to be honest with themselves and to find out what was happening to the roses, eventually it wasn't until that collective force of everyone coming together to work and find the solution that they were able to confront the reality of what was happening to the roses. Mm. And I love this idea that um, we are all implicated in so many ways in this fight towards climate justice. And just by being a human, it requires us to consume. And um, like the animals in the story, they all needed to eat. But the issue here was that they weren't eating a diversity uh, and they weren't being honest in how much they were eating Mm -hmm. and and where. And so because of that lack of honesty and understanding of kind of the connections and what was happening on the territory as a whole, then the rabbits, the roses disappeared rather. Mm. And I think we can so often treat one another like the animals treated the rabbit and immediately casting blame instead of looking inward. Mm. And I love that that humility and the importance that the story brings forward of looking inward and seeing what we're doing, but then also not shying away from looking at one another as well and helping all of us to move forward in the best way possible. I love uh, that idea of council, of really coming together as a community um, and deciding together how to live. And it kind of, it ties back into something else that I wanted to ask you about um, from your book and something we've had a conversation about is the idea of law being written on your heart. And you, and you write in your book, law cannot simply be written on papers or handed down in courts when laws are written on people's hearts, just as language goes to the core of their being, then revitalization occurs. And I'd love for you to take a moment and, and talk a bit more about that. But I've, I've really been taking that idea into my life. How do we have kind of these positive norms and values that we continually enact and affirm as a community um, and bring and these bonds that kind of bring us together around knowing how we want to act? Mm, I love that question. So the example that was just given about how laws can be written in our hearts is through stories, simple stories, not complex ones, because, well, a simple story can be complex, but if we think about what are the stories that we can actually remember and that we can carry with us instead of needing to have them written down and to refer to and and to pull out of the depths, but these ones that can live with us on a day-to-day basis guide us in our actions. So we might be... Uh, out in the grocery store thinking about uh, buying something from thousands of miles away when a local option is equally available. And that story might come to our mind of the rabbits and the roses and thinking, hmm, how can I be 
consumptive in a good way. Mm. And so uh, one of the kind of teachings I received from an elder, Carlene Nipate Benesi Quay Elliott, who is uh, an elder who lives in my community, that really taught me about this laws need to be written on the heart um, was she had told me after our band council passed a bylaw that she was really sad that they had to write down this bylaw. Uh, and because for her, the moment we have to write something down onto paper, it means we've forgotten how we should actually be acting. And she grew up with songs and with ceremonies and by with water walking. So water walking is where women um, go for walks through to the different bodies of water in the territory and offer prayers for them and to connect with them in a very relational way. And these ways of being taught her her legal obligations for how to be an Anishinaabe woman taking care of our land and our waters in a good way. Mm. And she said to, to me and to my friend Hannah Askew, who was with me at the time, she said, laws are for the lawless. Mm. And that phrase, uh, laws are for the lawless, has taken on deeper meaning over time. But essentially, it makes me think that, again, those written laws just aren't quite as strong as the laws that actually constitute us, the ones that live inside of us, that are written on our hearts. And when we're able to move through life in a way that draws upon the best of our of our own laws, then we can hopefully live in more harmony than if we're just relying upon a, a 500 page tax code for example <laughs> yeah this is something that i've really learned from you um or i've been trying to learn from you working on it every day but you have um you're a really talented beater and uh you gave me a pair of earrings once and kind of mentioned that you'd woven love all throughout the beads for me and that kind of sense and that sense of how important it is to um to hold laws in our heart and to hold love and to bring kindness into our work has been something i've really been trying to do that that i think climate work can really boil down to kindness being kind to others, being kind to yourself, being kind to the world, and just remembering to weave weave love in into everything has been a has been a really cool thing to learn. I know that you've worked with a number of First Nations on upholding their laws, and I was wondering if you have any examples of that work. Yeah, so there's many examples, and I'd love to share one in particular uh, because it's very timely today, October 10th, 2018. The Helsic Nation, who are located on the central coast of British Columbia, and their main community is known as Bella Bella, they just filed their notice of claim today to sue Kirby Corp, who is the owner of the tugboat, the Nathan E. Stewart, which sank in their waters in October of 2016, mm -hmm. so two years ago. And over the past couple of years, they immediately formed an adjudication committee of different elders from the nation, a youth representative, matriarchs, 
men uh, an urban representative and had them investigate what happened and how did that violate their laws mm. and um, through that adjudication process they've now published their report and they're essentially grounding their claim in the Canadian court system on how this violated their laws so it's really exciting to see a nation bringing forward their laws in such a a deep way and a way that's very kind because they've produced the document such that anyone, even non-Helsic people, will be able to understand it. So it's written in English. It uses language that uh, legal practitioners are familiar with, though are deeply embedded in Helsic mm. society. And as I was working with the Helsic Nation this past year through the revitalizing in Indigenous law project for West Coast environmental law. Um, they were working on implementing an Oceans Act. Mm. So while they have this whole adjudication process going on, they're also thinking about how can we draft an, an Oceans Act to protect our ocean. They're also working on a constitution, a written constitution. So they're looking at ways to translate the laws of their ancestors into a contemporary context and have them interact uh, with industry, with government, uh, with people on the ground so that they can, everyone can be upholding the laws that have been operational in that territory for thousands of years. Wow. And is there, is that report available publicly yet or? Yes, it is. It's on the Helsic Nation website. Okay, perfect audience. <laughs> it's called the Adjudication Report, or Daduqua Law. Not that you'll know how to spell that. But. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Lynn. So if mm. people are listening right now and they're, they'd like to engage more with the revitalization of Indigenous law happening, do you have any suggestions? Um, there's so many beautiful initiatives and ways to engage right now. Um, but one of them, I think, would be if you just Google the Indigenous Law Research Unit and look up their different publications, um, they have some amazing videos that are posted on YouTube that are like three-minute long examples of uh, kind of case studies and fundamentals in Indigenous law. And those short videos are amazing ways to enter into this conversation of Indigenous law and provide further links um, for deeper exploration. Mm, that's awesome. Um, I've definitely checked out some of those resources, and they are wonderful. And I mean, you've already kind of been saying this throughout our conversation, all of the ways that you have hope, all of the way the ways the world are changing, but I might just put the question to you one more time. What, what gives you hope on climate change as, as the world seems to be changing rapidly? I think what gives me hope is, yeah, fo focusing on the incredible work that people are doing right now to fight climate change and this isn't something that just a few individuals are doing but i've had the opportunity to work in as a lawyer with 
the Stratlium First Nation, the Toquat First Nation, the Halsic First Nation, and the Chilcotin um, on different environmental projects and was able to engage with hundreds and hundreds of citizens from each of those nations who are all so deeply committed to upholding their laws and finding ways to invite others into an understanding of them and how to enforce them. And so I see this huge change um, moving across the landscape of what is now known as Canada, where nations are reclaiming their laws and governance structures and languages and uh, health initiatives. And through this, it's creating greater health on the earth. I love that in Alberta recently, a Buffalo Treaty was signed where many First Nations and non-Indigenous people as well, different organizations came together and made an agreement with the Buffalo so that the Buffalo could roam more freely mm. and come back. And as the buffalo come back, then different birds come back and different plants are able to thrive and a balance is restored. And there's talks now of doing a similar initiative with the salmon mm. and creating a salmon treaty um, as salmon stocks have been declining. So this amazing work is happening in so many places and it gives me such hope to think about the ancestral strengths that is present, present and all these answers and examples that we have behind us that we can look to to move forward. Mm, yeah. Wow, that gives me hope. I feel hopeful. <laughs> I just got a burst of energy. Um, well, thank you so much, Linz, for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to talk to me today. I just, I can't tell you how grateful I am for it, uh, truly. Oh, I'm so grateful to you, Grace, for all of your amazing initiatives and the way that you center friendship and, as you mentioned, love and what you do. And from the moment of our first back rub moving forward, that's something that I've seen come through strongly in you. <laughs> Today's very exciting call to action is to look up at least one of the resources on Indigenous law Lindsay mentioned in today's podcast and then share it with your community. I've posted some links to get you started in episode three's description on planetpotluck.com. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening to Planet Potluck. And remember, we're all in this together. You're listening to Planet Potluck, hosted by me, Grace Nosek. There's lots more to learn at planetpotluck.com. <laughs>